When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Greetings one and all and welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon group of podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Mike Leadis. I spent three decades working in the music industry, running my own PR company and working as a publicist. For you too, The Police, Depeche Mode, David Bowie, New Order, Peter Gabriel, Genesis, blah, 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 blah. If you want to know more, feel free to visit my website at www.tonymikeleadis.com. Each week, we'll strive to bring you a cornucopia of musical delights, all based around storytelling. There's archive interviews from back in my radio days with the likes of the Ramones, Steve Winwood, the Cramps, U2, etc., etc. We also have some great stories from some industry insiders. And on this week's podcast, something a little different. I've delved into the archives, like I said I would, and pulled out some rare archives, uh, talking to some industry insiders about the music industry and also about um, what's really going to happen in the future for uh, live performances. I'm in the process of uh, hounding a few people to get some uh, interviews done for the podcast in the upcoming weeks. Next week we'll be starting a series of YouTube podcasts, really old interviews and some uh, great insights from people who've worked with them, myself included. Uh, but in between, I dug all this stuff out, and um, the first thing we're going to start with is a guy called Ray Cooper. Now, Ray Cooper was the guy who gave me my first job in the music industry in 1974. He sadly passed away two years ago. Uh, he was an industry icon, um, very well respected, great sense of humour, and just an all-round brilliant bloke. He would leave you to get on with your job, and um, that in itself gave you enough reason to go out and perform and do your very best. I miss him enormously. He became a great friend. He talks a little bit here. Uh, this is something I did with him a long, long time ago before there were changes. I mean, basically, as iTunes and everything else was coming in, as I departed to the States because the industry was changing, I thought it would be great to get an insight from somebody who uh, was right at the, at the top of his game. At the time, he was the uh, president of Virgin Records in America. And he talks about the structure of labels and how iTunes came in and how things would change and uh, how it would affect acts ongoing and the kind of things that they want to uh, do. So we'll leave... Just a few minutes of Ray talking about this, and then I'll be back in to blab a little bit more and tell you what's coming next. So, Mr. Ray Cooper. Well, the obviously the big uh, 600-pound gorilla as far as the uh, music labels are concerned has been the internet. And having ignored it and used it promotionally for uh, a number of years, the, the labels have had to face up to the fact that file sharing, uh, the availability of free music, 
uh, swapping of tracks is going to be something that, that, that is not going to go away. So what they've started to do is to uh, embrace the technology and to be able to put together a business plan where they license music into uh, various streams of um, retail operations on the net and are able to get at least some income from um, what is normally downloaded for free. People will buy, consumers will buy um, music in a package. Uh, they're just a little loath to buy it uh, singly. The exception to that is obviously iTunes, which is where the major labels um, started to get their um, teeth around the emerging uh, digital technologies. And iTunes has been a substantial success, as everyone knows. Um, and it's really given um, a new direction to um, what the music companies think of now. It's, it's re in, in the major labels parlance, it's the re-emergence of the single. But really what it's done is it's made it uh, a track-based culture for purchase and for acquisition rather than a... Uh, an album-based culture. Albums will be around for a long time. They'll be released on CD for a long time still. But more and more people will be satisfied by acquiring tracks of, of their artists, and this will free artists up to, in the future, and this is a number of years away, I think, as, as a common uh, thread, uh, that you will have artists uh, making their music available, you know, 14 tracks if they want one month, two tracks the next month. Uh, it will not need to be a specific album with a specific running length of anywhere between 60 and 80 minutes. And the emerging music technologies will also allow the record companies whose most valuable asset, the major record companies, is their catalog, which they own in the main in perpetuity to be able to do licensing and packaging deals for, um, for uh, their consumers. They'll be able to, say, license 500 classic rock tracks at a specific price and then push that revenue stream down to the artist in uh, a new way. Uh, there will need to be, obviously, a, a rule of thumb where there is a chart that shows the popularity of music um, and that will be something that someone will come up with. At the moment, it's based on retail sales of albums, and it's been that way for quite some time. But I think measuring popularity uh, and getting retail involved uh, primarily in this uh, new digital technology is going to be the goal of all the major companies in the future. Well, the major record companies, I think, have to have a, at some point, and uh, it's not me to tell them. Uh, it's not good of me to tell them how to run their businesses. But I'm, I'm, I know the smart ones will have probably already thought of it. Is that all you really need to do to have uh, a, 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 a comfortable overhead in a major label is to is to backroom all the uh, functions, uh, royalties, sales. Uh, promotion even, as well as everything that is backroomed to a large degree anyway, now like um, like um, royalty payments, financial payments, you can, you can merge those into other um, businesses in, in the back room. In fact, most of the major 
uh, companies could be non-competitive on this and just share a resource um, when 70% of uh, the business in physical retail in America is done by five major chains then it's easy to backroom all that stuff and what the record companies would need or the music companies would need uh, to employ is you know a handful of very good A&R people that can articulate and explain uh, the, the culture of the, of the company that they work with you need um, somebody who's some people who are media savvy you need um, you need some people who uh, are good at business affairs and, and legal uh, and international people so that you can explain what the uh, what the culture is and, and as far as the artist you're signing and um, and, and most of all, um, it's just having that facility. Um, you don't need, you know, to have exclusive 30 people on the road doing sales or 10, uh, 15 people on the road doing um, doing uh, radio and different promotion. You, you can make yourself into a, 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 a cell within a large corporation by having the front-facing part of that operation be the creative part of the business. And it doesn't take that many people to run it and to give the artist, even if they're megastars, the efficiency that they need. I think it's true to say that people like that are enormously missed. Uh, people who are uh, music people who ran labels. Ray Cooper was, uh, well, he, he worked um, ELO for a long period of time, took him into like a, a whole new sphere of, uh, you know, success. And uh, my first job with him was at Transatlantic Records, which was predominantly a folk and jazz record label in the early 70s. Um, we both went to ABC Records. We both went to Ireland Records, where he was a sales director. Um, then he started Circa Records, his own label with uh, Massive Attack and then a Cherry and stuff. Uh, got... Um, morphed into the whole virgin uh, mega empire as the managing director and basically the whole marketing campaign that exploded for the uh, for the Spice Girls. Uh, as a result of that, they shipped him out to the States to do the very same thing again. Like I say, a great, great industry icon and missed by a whole bunch of us. I'm going to hear a little bit here from Mark Radcliffe. You've heard Mark on the programme before. He's a very experienced 40 years, in fact, with the BBC in England and uh, presenting uh, TV spectaculars like Glastonbury and stuff. He's an author and um, he's a smart guy in the music industry. And um, we were talking for a little while after the interview. These are kind of like outtakes from stuff that we've done about the um, what's going to happen with live music and get different people's opinions and things. So uh, we still mark into the mix. It's only a couple of minutes because, like I say, there's going to be separate podcasts on Moments That Rock that are exclusively about that, which I think will be great help for uh, for basically musicians who really don't know what's going to come next. I mean, all those people who've worked in the industry have no real clue what's going to come next, but I'm sure a bunch of them, as, as well, I'm speaking now, uh, talking about that very same thing. But let's listen a little bit to Mr. Mark Radcliffe. I mean, the other thing is like, what's going to happen to the, uh, what's going to happen to all the small venues? You know, I mean, it remains to be seen how many of those reopen. Apart from the fact that the atmosphere will be weird. I mean, the finances just won't stack up. I mean, it, it just will not. And what about at the interval when people all want to go to the toilet? You know. <laughs> 
But even at, even at festivals and everything, you know, you've got plenty of space in theory. But like, imagine doing Glastonbury with social distancing, so there isn't that big pack at the front of the stage. It's like, it's, it won't work. And the mega acts, I mean, you know, with the travel, how much is how much is the you know the the the, the plane's going to cost? How much is the travel actually going to cost? You know, also, is there all going to be viruses about vulnerable to the elderly? Well, the Rolling Stones are elderly. Will they not want to travel because they might be at risk of health-wise? You know, I mean, we could be seeing a, we could be seeing the sort of the end of the mega global tour. I think uh, some of it's gone forever, but which bits? I'm not sure. I don't think it will come back the same as it was before ever. Now, I think though that the real difference will be when people watch it because I watch concerts on the telly. I watch it, and it really frustrates me because. Uh, the cameras chop and change all the time. You don't watch a band like that. You might focus on someone for a minute or two and then you'll watch the drummer for a bit. And I think once you be able to get a, a, a control of that in your own house with your headset or whatever it is, that you can decide which bits of that performance you want to some degree. I think that that will be the real breakthrough. So that, so that the t whoever's putting it out would put cameras on, like, but they wouldn't cut between them. They would feed you like we do, like at Glastonbury where they feed you every stage, they would feed you ten cameras maybe, and yeah. they wouldn't, uh, and they would just lock those cameras off, and then, or maybe they'd have a big wide shot or one on the singer or whatever, and you could then select between your own cameras to watch which angles of that performance you wanted. I mean, if you could do that, that would be amazing. Technologies are so cheap anyway. You you could probably put ten iPhones on stands and do it. So I think that would be a great idea because watching concerts on the telly frustrates because it moves about too quick. Very interesting stuff. Mark Radcliffe from the BBC. Mark's been on the BBC for some 40 years now. He was the head of music at a local radio station in Manchester that I did my own show on. Uh, he lived with me for two years, so I got to know him really well. Um, he really is a very smart guy and it's uh, really interesting to hear what he's got to say about what possible the future, what future uh, might hold for uh, live venues. And like he said, quite honestly, I really agree with him in as much as we don't know as we speak now which of those venues have managed to remain open. And with social distancing, when really gigs are about a bunch of people packed in close next to one another, whether or not it's arena when people like, you know, just congregate at the front, or even you go back to the days of punk, people jumping up and down and bouncing off each other and things. How you social distance within a, a live venue is beyond me. So we're going to wait and see uh, what happens. I really hope there's some kind of future, but it might be a, a really vastly changed business model in as much as uh, I kind of think the streaming thing and concerts on TV that can be broadcast all over the world, which is very cost-effective, making ticket prices cheaper and everything. Yeah, we know you won't be in the crowd with the people jumping up and down and enjoying yourself. But um, certainly for the immediate future, things have to change. But on with the show. You, uh, The show being Moments That Rock with me, your host, Tony Michaelidis. Each week we delve into the music industry and we talk to artists. There's some archive stuff in the Way Back Then section. We also talk to, uh, we have some insider insights, which a lot of this is uh, industry insider talking about the music industry and stuff. But I also want to uh, dig a little deeper into um, just really uh, 
topics that would interest a whole bunch of people. And also, I've got a list of people I'm going to interview. Over the coming weeks, uh, we've got some great YouTube stuff. We've got Malcolm Gary, who you've heard on the uh, podcast before, talking about the story of Red Rocks, which is a brilliant story. Basically, his team from Newcastle in England put that whole thing together. And the rest really is rock history. And um, there's an interview I did with you two just before The Unforgettable Fire, which was uh, the album that really sent him into the stratosphere. And uh, there's a really interview, a really interview, a really old interview with Mark Radcliffe that I arranged by taking you two in to talk to him around the release of The Boy. And uh, Bono was a really angry young man. But that's next week and weeks to come. So stay, stay tuned for that. And now we'll go over and listen to Mr. Mark Radcliffe talking... Uh, no, sorry, we've done Mark Radcliffe. We will listen to Peter Hook from New Order. He's talking about some interesting things like merchandise and managers and labels and the industry. And he's a guy who I've known personally and worked with for, for over 30 years with New Order and I managed him for a while and stuff. And um, he really has been on the road all his life. So the, for that year, he's been stuck at home. So it's a wonder he's still alive. But over to Hooky to hear the rest. I mean, we were we were lucky though, because if you think about it, you know, New Order playing live on Top of the Pops, what a moment that was. Um, and then you look at the Stone Roses when they did that one, you know, and they kicked off on telly. I mean, they are the magical moments you don't seem to get anymore. The personality seems to have gone out of music in the same way that you don't get these personality managers anymore. You know, these really big characters that lead music. You don't seem to get when you know, the only one we've got I can think of is Simon Bloody Cowell. That's how desperate these times are. Cowell is the only big music character. It, it's weird, isn't it? You know, all those big Peter Grant, Don Arden, all those people that led music. I mean, I'm just reading the Daltrey book at the moment, and you've got that guy who started track records, Kit Lambert, was Yeah, it Kit Lambert. He managed The Who as well, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he managed them and ran the record label as well. I mean, track were a very, very forward Hendrix, wasn't it? At that time, yeah. But, I mean, they were being ripped off. You know, it's, it's one of those academic cliches, isn't it, that you get a good manager... The reason he's a good manager is because he's so creative. <laughs> like Rob Gretton with the Hacienda. You, you know, it goes beyond the group in some ways. So, yeah, it's quite interesting. And then, you know, when you're sitting there, you're thinking these record labels just aren't like that anymore in the same way that managers are and in the same way that groups aren't. Yeah, but you, know, you, groups... kind of, you, um, you were kind of always like, you always had, you knew a lot of people around and about, because Factory wasn't like your normal record label, we all know that. I look back on the people that, you know, the Chris Blackwells, the Seymour Steins, the Armored Ertigans, they were music people running companies, Peter, you know, they were, they were like, yeah, no, you yeah. know, like, I mean, they weren't it's... accountants and lawyers like they are today. No, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it still seems that bands are getting ripped off but in a cold clinical way certainly without much fun you know if you look at the fracas the uh, the rolling stones had the beatles had um they still managed to make music that inspired uh, generations of people for years and years and years despite it 
So it is a strange at the moment. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's because we're old. There are different income streams for, for artists now, though, aren't there? I mean, like, oh, obviously yeah. the live thing was, was a real thing. I mean, you've done it for a long time, but some of the newer people that put on, like, bigger shows now and have the machinery around them, I mean, they can sell the merchandise. And, of course, the record companies want a piece of it, but I think artists and bands can be a little more self-sufficient now because of the amount of work they have to do themselves for visibility. Well, they do. They they have to work the balls off. But, I mean, don't start me on merchandise. Still pisses me off that every venue you play at takes twenty five percent of your gross merchandise for. So they take all the profit. Really? For no reason. I can't see why any promoter would do a shit deal because the only victim is the uh, is the actor. You know, the promoter wouldn't have that deal with regard to the concert, but he lets the venue shaft the uh, act. The very act that is selling out the venue is get shafted on the merchandise. I think it's absolutely a travesty that, and it's it's from the arc as well. It's a real old. I've tried to fight it. I've been fighting that for years. That the venue takes all the profit on the t-shirts. You know, you see, unbelievable, that... unbelievable travesty of justice that is. But you see that that's a perfect example because that's where like a Peter Grant or somebody like that could have changed the business model. Yes, they could do. I mean, and it could still be changed. It's just that it's so rooted in that it's been doing it for so long. But the biggest thing about that in particular is, is that the bands don't know. I was in a band for 30 odd years and I never knew that happened. And then of course, when I came to do a Pete Hook and the light gig and I said, how, how did the t-shirts do? And the t-shirts went, the guy went, oh yeah, it done really well, but the venue took 25% of the growth. 25. And I'm going, hey, and you know, and it just shows you, doesn't it? I'm going, no, no, that's not right. And I argue with every venue till I'm blue in the face. And all of them say the same thing. Oh, it's just always been like that. But now, especially after this, it's going to be even more important for people to recover to not be shafted. But the promoters in particular seem to not bother about that one. And I had the same argument with SJM. Um, same argument with Live Nation at their venues. Why do you do this when you know it takes all the profit? And they just say, well, we've always done it. It's because they, like, oh, they can get away with it. I, I mean, was going to say, because they can. The, yeah, but no, the, well, the, there's that aspect of it. But the thing is, is that the groups don't mind. You know, the groups don't know. I don't know. I mean, if you take sell one T-shirt for 20 quid, you've got to pay VAT of four quid. Then the merch company's taking 20 to 40%. And then your manager's taking 20% minus cost. By the time it gets out of the group, you're probably getting 50p a t-shirt. You know, it's, it's really, really weird. But the thing is, it's, it's only the hands-on groups that notice it. Do you feel... Do you big feel groups that, don't care. Do you feel that the live thing has changed a lot over the years? No, I mean, I think the, the thing is, is that the costs are unbelievable. And uh, I was absolutely mortified when I read that all these people that have had to cash in their tickets, you know, for gigs that have been cancelled. So you pay, what, 75 quid to see someone and there's a handling charge from the ticket company of 12, 14 quid. And... Um, the, so you've got a handling charge there on top of your 75 quid. You come on, you ask for your 75 quid back, and they're charging you another 14 quid to give it you back. Oh, my God. Really? But yeah. And the, re the reason people are asking 
for the money back is not because they're not a fan of the band and they don't want to see him. It's because they presumably they've been out of work, they need the money. And then lo and behold, you know, event him or whatever they call, go and um, take the money off him on the back end as well, which I think was uh, absolutely disgusting, I think, personally, at, that, at this time to do it. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of wrongs still in rock and roll that maybe the bands will never hear of. The interesting thing about doing it yourself on the internet is, is that, you know, for a band to do a gig on the internet, maybe just playing together, socially distant, but, and they, they charge five, 10 quid. But if you were doing that at a venue, the charge would be 35. Because the venue are making much more money or charging much more money than the band are. Which is all, it's always an interesting thing. You know, if you take what the band gets paid off the ticket price, uh, I think a fan would go, Jesus, that's ridiculous. The venue, the promoter, everybody else involved is getting much more than the band. So it's a weird one, isn't it? It's, it's one of those things that will come. The, the weird thing about it is, is that everybody is going to be vying at the same time to earn. So all the venues are going to be inundated if it, if it comes back. And all the groups are going to all be out at the same time because they've all had a year off earning. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not doing too bad. Um, I, you know, I can, I, can, I can afford to take a year off. It's not going to be much fun. Um, but there's a lot of people who can't. And those people, when it does come back again, are all going to be wanting that bit. You know, it's going to be a weird time, isn't it? Everyone's going to be fighting to play. And they're going to make mistakes, though, because, I mean, you've got the experience. I mean, do you manage yourself now? Do you take care of the whole business of Peter Hutton the Light? No, I manage myself for everything apart from the live. Right. I've got a wonderful manager, actually, called Pete Byrne, who used to manage Echo and the Bunnymen, still does manage Echo and the Bunnymen, and the farm. Um, and he looks after us and he looks after us so well. He is an amazing, amazing man. He, his only interest is making sure that you're happy and um, really, really looked after. Uh, and it's quite weird because Rob Gretton had a different attitude. Fucking shut up and get on with it, you twat. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard that a few times, haven't you? I've heard to plenty of those. Fucking get on with it. Who well, are used... you, Michaelides? I, I, used uh, to... I can imagine what, what he would say to you. So, yeah, Rob had a different attitude. But this guy is fantastic. And he's really, really... He's got, he's got the same birthday as me. Born on the same day as me. And I must admit, I've, I've never met anybody who's more perfectionist and everything is right. He makes sure that everything is well. That, is that's right. that's it's the great. way. That's the way it should be. But it isn't, unfortunately, isn't it? Because that's the no, Peter Grant no. school. He did everything for Zeppelin. Because if anybody was selling a T-shirt outside and and profiteering off like his brand and his band, they were taking money away from the band. Yeah, so, which is ironic because probably he was selling them outside as well. So there you have it, good people. Mister Hook, Peter Hook, Hooky. Um, seasoned professional musician, obviously Joy Division in New Order, and he's had his own solo career for over 10 years now. And um, before that, you heard Mark Radcliffe, again, another seasoned professional. Before that, another guy who'd spent close on 40 years in the business, Ray Cooper. And they all sound like old men, but they're not, because I find that when you have to delve deep and find... Um, you know some stuff that's happened in the industry and stuff that's going on now what the what the whole the whole future might hold 
and um, also the great times. It's great to have the stories, but I really think you've got to be around a while to have that experience, to share those moments. Speaking of moments, this has been Moments That Rock. I'm your host, Tony Michaelidis, a proud member of the Pantheon School of Podcasts. And I love my AKG, sorry, my AKG microphone. So thank you so much for giving me that to blabber through. We will actually be back next week with part one of a series of interviews and uh, opinions, comments, etc. Mostly interviews, old interviews with that very famous popular group called U2. We shall see you then. Thank you very much for tuning in. Subscribe. Make nice comments, do whatever you want, actually. But come back and listen, and um, we'll share some more uh, knowledge from experienced professionals, industry insiders, archive interviews, and some new interviews we might throw in there, and a few of my own stories. I'm going. Bye.